So last week I had the uh, I had the honor of of uh, giving the word at uh, my uncle's funeral, <clears throat> and it just kind of reminded me how much of a of an honor it is to be able to do this. Um, I just wanted to thank you guys again for putting up with me as long as you will. So. <clears throat> I mean, maybe it's your cross to bear. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so we we were uh, kind of skirted out of John a little bit there. Um, then between that and the breaks that we had, but we are back in in John. We are in chapter two, and today we're going to be going through verses one through twelve. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and read from the uh, NASB here. Excuse me. Verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, What business do you have with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he tells you, do it. Now there were six stone pots standing there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing two and three measures each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to Him. Now when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, The head waiter called the groom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and then the guests guests are drunk, and he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, and he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. All right, so there's a lot of metaphors that go on, obviously, in Scripture, but just because something is a metaphor does not mean it didn't really happen. This is one of those instances, of course, because this is history of Jesus' ministry. So, truth and metaphors, obviously, history and metaphors exist together. What we have here, though, is in the Jewish culture, not completely dissimilar from ours now, but weddings are big celebrations. But I would say this part, maybe it is a little different than ours now, because this is a big deal when there's a wedding in the Jewish customs back then. This is a huge celebration, upwards of a week long sometimes. So this is not just a one day and done kind of deal. These people are celebrating, they're doing all sorts of things. For up to a week sometimes. And Jesus has been invited to this. So He obviously is the kind of man they wanted to have there. Testament to who He was, who He he is to them. And if we notice, uh, this is just a side deal, but by this point, Joseph is gone. Joseph has most likely died. uh, Jesus' earthly father there. Uh, they don't. We never see exactly when that happens, but we just know that suddenly he is not with them. So Joseph most likely gone by now. But Jesus 
his brothers, his mother, and his disciples are all invited to this event. Yet we know that as there are some metaphors in Scripture, some lessons for us, that this is a very good lesson for us because when we want a marriage to be blessed, we invite Jesus into it. And He will bless it. And He will keep it if you keep Him with you. So Jesus is just coming fresh from His work. And yet here He is. He comes to this wedding that He has been invited to. And it makes me wish that... Uh, let me ask this. Was any, anybody here Christians when they got married? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah. See, I envy you guys because that was not the case for me and my wife. Uh, we were not Christians at that time. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference when you have Jesus at the center. So I attended a wedding uh, a month and a half ago or something like that. And it was the first wedding that I had been to like this. I would say that at the, for the ceremony, three quarters of it was all about Jesus. It was all about Jesus and His work and how He... How he uh, is important in the lives of these people and how he is going to be the anchor of this of this marriage and it was the most beautiful wedding that I've ever been to because it was not about me 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 it was about him 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 and it was just a drastically different ceremony a really nice ceremony uh, so Jesus when he is invited to your wedding when he's invited to your marriage even afterwards just because he didn't make the wedding doesn't mean you can't invite him later But He blesses that union. And it's a different union altogether when Jesus is involved in it. So, in this wedding though we see here, they run out of wine. Okay, Now I want to say something on this right off the bat. I do not believe that these verses here are about the wine. And a lot of times people get this misconstrued. Okay? We will discuss the wine briefly because it is there. I mean, and it is part of the miracle, but that is not what these verses are about. It is not about the wine. So, in lieu of Scripture, because you can never just take one section of Scripture and apply a whole theology to it, we know that we are called not to be drunkards. We know we are not called to be slaves to alcohol. But, did Jesus make wine here? Yes, he made wine. Absolutely he made wine. Was it good wine? I don't believe that Jesus would make bad wine. Uh, In fact, I would say what else could Jesus make but good wine? He doesn't do anything bad. So was was it like the wine that we know today? Like the beer, the alcohol that we know today? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God is the standard here. And like most things in our lives, we're not going to meet the standard of God. Well, I guarantee you that those beverages today do not meet the standard of Jesus' wine. So what we call call wine today, it's not what Jesus created then. You know, nowadays, it's how how much alcohol content can they squeeze into it while still having it maintain a palatability. But that's not what was going on here. Jesus made His wine... That's not the Lord's wine what the world has today. Because if we had the Lord's wine, I mean, we would marvel at it. 
we would savor it as we were sitting at that table, just wishing that it wouldn't end because it would be that delicious. You know, you'd wince when you got to the last drop or if you were just too full to drink anymore. That's the kind of wine that Jesus would make. And you wouldn't get intoxicated from it. I hate to say it, but you wouldn't get intoxicated for it because back then, wine was a lot different. Did it have alcohol content in it? Absolutely, it did. But a lot of times it was watered down for drinking and consumption. And Jesus didn't make the kind of wine that would poison your body, that would destroy you with addiction. You wouldn't come off of Jesus' wine with an addiction to alcohol. You just wouldn't. Or Jesus wouldn't have made it. Why would He make something that would do that to the people that He was, he was celebrating with? So, I guarantee you, just as a last note on the wine, if all wines, if all alcohols today were made the way that Jesus made His, it wouldn't even be a discussion because we wouldn't have any issues. So, Enough with the alcohol. So, here we see where Jesus is going to make His first public miracle. And is He going to do it before the entire world? Is He going to do it before all the Pharisees and the Sadducees? No, He didn't. He did it before a small party of people that He likely knew and loved. And it was a very simple display because even amongst the people that were there, not everybody knew what was going on. Not everybody was aware of what had happened. <clears throat> so, he doesn't make a big fuss about it, and not everyone sees it happen. See, what was going on here is part of this is Jewish custom, Jewish uh, society. So, it would have been a big deal for you to go to this wedding party and all of a sudden they run out of wine. It would have been extremely discourteous of them to you to have done that. So they very likely maybe were poor because they couldn't afford to have enough on hand. They, uh, this was not a good way for them to start a marriage, I guarantee you. Um, and there are some Jewish customs which I'm not completely familiar with on reading, but we're some people could even possibly sue them for this in a way. So they could, they could come at them monetarily and say, you dishonored us and you owe us. They could, there, there were some people that would do something like that. So this, there were repercussions for being a really bad host. So Jesus' mother tells him, they have no wine. They have no wine. And there's lots of thoughts on why she said this to him. Lots of people have different ideas on it. Yours is just as good as mine as far as I'm concerned. I mean, she likely at this point already knew all the things that Jesus had went through. His baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, uh, him being introduced to people around town as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of, sin of the world. So she likely knew all these things. Maybe she wanted him to proclaim his glory because you've got to imagine... There were probably still a lot of people that said some things about her because she became pregnant before she knew her husband. Maybe not everybody believed her when she said that the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. Uh, you know, maybe it was just because she was a proud mother and wanted to see his ministry start. Maybe she just wanted him to do something nice for this couple. Okay, I don't know. I don't think any of us know. But those possibilities. 
But what we do know is that in this situation right here, we see what is most likely a relationship change between Mary and Jesus. So, he calls her woman, but it's the translations make it funny. It's not like he was speaking down to her. He was saying it in a form of respect. You know, you could say it as lady or something like that. But his he didn't say mother. He didn't say, Mom, I'm not going to do that. He says, says lady, woman, I, I can't do this. Right? It's what he, this, this is what he's saying. Why are you asking me these things? But for her, what had changed right there was that when she needed something from Jesus from now on, it wasn't on the basis of mother and son. It was on the basis of sinner and Savior. And that's very different from what some theologies will say. But that's what happened here because Mary was just as sinful as anybody else. She was not born without sin. She did not live without sin. And now she needed a Savior too. So, what happened then? Because Jesus essentially says no, and then He does it, right? Why? Well, like I said, Scripture does not exist in a vacuum. Scripture exists as a whole. And we see later on, which we will cover later, but in John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing. <clears throat> I, I can myself do nothing. I don't seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So the Father must have told Jesus to do this, because otherwise He would not have done it. So it starts now. Mary may have been wrong to basically tell Jesus to do something, but she was on to something big. She did have a good epiphany here, whether she knew it or not. Because what does she tell the servants? She says, whatever He tells you, do it. Whatever He tells you, do it. And that may have been to them, but because we have it written down, it is most certainly to us, for us. So Jesus tells them to fill the water pots. They probably don't understand why He's telling them to do this. But they didn't question it, and they didn't make a fuss. And when we put this together with Scripture, and at the end, please, please comment on this if you have different ideas on this, but when you put the big picture together, it seems that before Jesus blesses us, not all the time, but a lot of the time, before He blesses us, and He does bless us, right? Everybody's been blessed, I assume. Before He blesses us, He gives us a command in our life. He does give us a command. Does it sound weird to say that? Look at the miracles that are performed in, in John as we go through them. Lazarus is laying in his tomb, stinky dead. He is gone. He's been there for days. You wouldn't want to walk in there and what does Jesus tell him? He says, Lazarus. He gives him a command. He says, come forth. And there comes Lazarus. <clears throat> he tells these servants, fill the pots. And they do it. And then there's blessed with a miracle there. Uh, the man who's blind, after he puts the mud in his eyes, the clay in his eyes, he tells him, go and wash. Go do this. Go and wash. So, and it's no different in our lives because when we come to Him as a sinner, we see that the Scriptures tell us Jesus is telling us to believe. That's our command, to believe. You believe, 
and you shall be saved. So Mary said, listen to him, don't question him. And it's great advice for our lives to not question the Lord. The servants could have questioned him. They could have went, I mean, they could have said, oh my gosh, I'm going to take water to the head waiter. Like this, this guy's going to kill me when he takes a sip of this and says, what are you doing? We don't need this. But it's like this for all of us because many times, many people wanting out of a sin, out of a vice that's controlling their lives, God tells you, believe on His Son. Believe on His Son. And the world questions this because they say, how can doing this one thing conquer a sin in your life? All sin in your life. But it's without questioning. It's our allegiance to Jesus Christ which is our faith flexed when we go that it's not His will, it's, it's not our will, it's His. That's who we're going to follow. The world tells us that it's, an, it, that it's silly to think that by doing these things, by doing this thing, by just having faith in Jesus Christ, that you're going to have eternal life. And your heart, if you let it, will lean away from Him as well. But we listen to the Lord. I saw, I saw a quote by somebody, somebody who a lot of the kids will listen to. He said, this person said that self-worth is determined by you. You don't have to depend on someone to tell you who you are. Expound, uh, so so when, we, when we look at that, how can you find self-worth without God? Uh, you know, we, I spoke on this recently at my uncle's funeral. The reason that we mourn for people is because they're made in the image of God. They are image bearers of God. That's why we have intrinsic value. Because without God, there would be no value. So you have to have God to have any value, to have any self-worth. And we know that God exists. But to not recognize that gives you a really big hurdle in finding that self-worth. So we listen to the Lord. Such a small command to have faith, but it's all-encompassing in our life. And belief in Christ, we know, gives us adoption into the family of God and into eternal life. And it causes us to be born again. And so the servants filled the pots to the brim. That's something that a lot of times we miss when we skim through this. There was no room for adding anything into these pots of water. And so that is for us as well, that we should fill our pots to the brim. And that's talking of our zeal, our love for God, that we should preach with zeal, filled to the brim, that we should share with zeal. We should repent, pray, and ask, filled to the brim for the Lord. You know, we serve to the brim. We the one that everybody hates to do, we forgive to the brim. We forgive to the brim and we love to the brim of that pot. We love God and we love others to that maximum. So I mentioned that there's no room for adding to these pots because it's very important because Jesus wasn't mixing something. He wasn't concocting something for them. He wasn't brewing or fermenting some new wine for them. That's not what happened here. 
Jesus, much as with the wine as with us, transformed. He transformed the water. Jesus knows what he's doing. And he may have done this on a small occasion, but it is for us because when we come to him, he transforms us just as he did that water. It is not the same anymore. We are not the same anymore. A lot of times uh, we'll see in Scripture where, where uh, we are looked at as vessels and, we talk, and when God is the potter. It's no, it's no accident. It all fits together here. So we are that vessel filled and God converts us. He transforms us into something entirely different. And if you feel like you are that vessel and you haven't had that conversion, if you haven't had that, re, that rebirth, then now is the time to do it. There's nothing wrong with now. There's no better time than now. Scripture tells us that Jesus is always calling for people to come to Him. But you have to do it. You have to choose to have faith on Him. He's not going to force you. He's not going to drag you kicking and screaming into heaven. But keep this clear in mind. That just as the servants did nothing to change that water, you can do nothing when you come to Christ. Your good behavior is not going not to save you. Doing all the right ordinances, doing all the right things is not going to save you. It's faith in Christ that saves you. You come as you are, you submit to the King, and He does the work for you. He does it. And that's when you are born again. Like I said, I just can't imagine being the servants and having to take that water because maybe they weren't believers, maybe they weren't followers in Christ. You never know. But Christ said, you're going to test my work right now. And I've done this. You know, He didn't tell them, but we know what He did. He did it. His will was expressed. Sometimes you see in, uh, in some, some movies about this or TV shows when they try to display this scene, I've seen some where they'll they'll have him like have a moment where he's like concentrating or this or that. And I think that that's incorrect. God's will, he doesn't need to try. If God wants to do something, he does it, and that's it. I think that's where they get it a little wrong. It's not hard for Jesus to turn water into wine, just like it's not hard for him to convert the heart of an unbeliever. So, he did this and then they had a large amount on hand, way more than they would ever need for this event. And the head waiter called the groom, and he says to him, every man serves the good wine first, and then the guests are drunk, and he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So at the end, this is going to sound funny, but at the end of your life, at the end of your days, you find the good wine. What do I mean by that? I don't mean when you die, if that's what you're thinking. Because I will tell you that the end of your old life is when you find the good wine. Because when you come to Jesus, it's entirely different. The old wine is gone. When you find the power of the blood for your salvation, you find the good wine and your life begins. And it's different for everyone how that happens, but it all is faith in Christ because that is the only way that we get this. But some people focus on different parts of the good wine when they come to the Lord. For some, they focus on the salvation. Some, it's the freedom from the world's stress. 
that weight on their shoulders. Some people find it to be the promises of God, the blessings that they've received, or their prayers that are answered in His time, or just knowing that their value before God as an adopted child. So, you know, the question for you is what is your good wine? So this was the beginning of Christ's signs. We're going to see healings as we go through this. We're going to see mass feedings. We're going to see walking on water. And we're going to see raising of the dead. But even this small event manifested His glory. And I would like to believe that it manifested it because it showed His compassion. It wasn't necessary per se. These people weren't going to die if they didn't get good wine. But he saved this, this new wedding couple, saved them this embarrassment, their reputation perhaps, monetary troubles. But why, however, whatever reason he did it, the father deemed that this is what was going to go on and it would manifest his son's glory. And because of this, it says that the disciples believed him, believed in him. But this is not to say that they just came to belief in him. This is to say that they believed deeper into him, farther into him. And it's not unsimilar as, uh, in our lives because when we have God work in our lives, we get that refreshing, that re- maybe, a, maybe a renewing to a certain degree, but a new zeal when God works in us.